If you're curious to engage with a lot of the topics we explore on the podcast in more creative and embodied ways, we welcome you to join us in Alchemize, our 10-week audio-based program of daily imagination practices intended to disrupt status quo ways of thinking, sensing, relating, and being. To be honest, without any grant support for our show right now, and we did just get turned down by several mainstream environmentalism philanthropies, this program and our Patreon are our primary means of supporting our labor for these free podcasts right now. We really want to remain untethered to corporate interests, and every small contribution to our Patreon or enrollment in our program Alchemize helps to ensure that we can continue producing these vital conversations that feature voices and perspectives often sidelined from mainstream media. So if you value our work and want to dive deeper with us, join us in Alchemize today at greendreamer.com slash alchemize and join our Patreon starting at just $3 at patreon.com slash greendreamer. Thank you so, so much for however you were able to support our work during these critical times. We are so deeply grateful. You're listening to Green Dreamer, a listener-supported podcast, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. As we embark on a new year for the show, we would love to invite you to join our Patreon community, where we'll begin to share bonus episode offerings, some of my own reflections on these conversations, and more. If you've been with us for a while, you also know that we often explore ideas and perspectives that go against mainstream currents in order to seed more imaginative thinking for what could be. So if you value our platform and curiosities and intention and want to support us to break through the noise of mainstream media, join us today on Patreon at greendreamer.com support. From my point of view, the problem is, is when someone walks up and is like, no, that's the only way to look at the world. And I remember, for example, like Stephen Hawking towards the end of his life would talk about how like there was no need for God anymore because we had physics. And I'm paraphrasing and potentially poorly paraphrasing, but that was my takeaway from it. And I'm actually not a person who has like faith in the supernatural. But it's my point of view as a physicist that actually what we do as physicists doesn't tell us anything about whether there is a God or not. That's not really the set of questions that our toolkit is designed to answer. And so I think it's okay to know what your tools can and cannot do. In this episode, we are honored to welcome Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein, Assistant Professor of Physics and Astronomy and a core faculty member in Women's Studies at the University of New Hampshire. She is the lead Axion Wrangler and a social media team member for the NASA Strobe X Probe Concept Study. The first Black woman in history to hold a faculty position in theoretical cosmology, Dr. Prescott Weinstein is also a Twitter activist who frequently goes viral, a prolific writer and editor in multiple genres and disciplines, and the author of The Disordered Cosmos, From Dark Matter to Black Lives Matter, and a soon-to-come column in The New Scientist. A millennial, she is at the vanguard of a new cohort 
of brilliant, young, tech-savvy academics who are conducting important research in science and technology, while also gracefully shouldering the responsibility of helping transform the way many of us think about what it means to be a scientist or a technologist and who we think of when we imagine those categories. I guess actually probably black holes were kind of my gateway. Really, I my mom, and again, this is my mom's influence, she took me to see a documentary about Stephen Hawking called A Brief History of Time. And I was 10 years old, I think. And I didn't want to go. It meant I had to miss like Saturday morning cartoons because we could only afford matinees. So we were definitely going to like an early showing. And then halfway through the documentary, Stephen Hawking was talking about how we didn't really understand the physics of singularities and that the laws of physics broke down at the center of a black hole. And I was starting to put together that like this was his day job was to worry about this question that like Einstein hadn't been able to resolve. And I was like, wait, you can get paid to use math to describe the universe and to solve problems that Einstein couldn't work out. That is the job that I want. And I think, you know, for me as a working class kid, I knew I had to have a career. I knew that that was like the only way out of the community where I grew up. I mean, we could have a whole conversation about like why I thought about it in in those terms, right? But that for me was just, I loved the idea of using math all day. I was already at a point where I knew that I really liked math. And I think that that for me was my introduction to the idea that math was the language that we use to describe how the universe actually works. And that was super exciting for me. The interesting thing is, is that I actually ended up writing my senior thesis in undergrad about active galactic nuclei, which are galaxies that have particularly powerful black holes at their core. So I did eventually do work on black holes. I also, one of my dissertation chapters was about a black hole solution in a particularly like quirky model of gravity. But black holes actually haven't been like a major part of my professional life. So that was something that I moved away from. And at this point, I'm at a stage in my career where I'm kind of like reassessing what are the research questions that I'm going to work on. And actually, I've been kind of returning to, you know, what are these fundamental questions about space time that we still haven't answered and that people are starting to leave behind because they're getting super hype about like quantum computers. But we still haven't solved these other problems. They're still out there and they're still really interesting and compelling, in my opinion. Right. And you've certainly gone a long way since your early interest and fascination. Today, you are one of less than 100 Black American women to have earned a PhD from a department of physics. And you're also one of the only Black women theoretical physicists in the world. Though you've noted that on top of becoming a scientist, you've also had to become experts on racism, sexism, and colonialism in science. So first, offer some historical backdrop. I wonder if you can share about how the contributions and leadership of Black scientists have often been erased from history. And what are some more notable examples of this that people should know? And what do you think has been the impact of the skewed narratives around science and what that means and looks like? The first name that comes to mind is Elmer Imes. And for listeners who are U.S.-based, 
maybe the the rooting name here is Nella Larson, who was the author of Passing, the novel, the Harlem Renaissance novel. And it was recently adapted into a film on Netflix that was actually, I was one of the people who thought, don't do that ad- adaptation. And I had to confess in public that I was completely wrong. It was a brilliant adaptation. Mm. So Elmer Iams was for a time married to Nella Larson. So there's this kind of great connection between the Harlem Renaissance and the history of Black people in physics. So Elmer Iams was the second African-American to earn a PhD in physics. He earned it, I believe, in 1918 from the University of Michigan. And his dissertation work was actually some of the first experimental work that affirmed that quantum mechanics was the correct description of atomic physics. That's not a name, though, that we learn in textbooks. Like, it's not mentioned in quantum mechanics textbooks. And usually the way that physicists learn any history of physics and history of our field is from the little comments that are made in textbooks or the things that make their way into pop culture. So it's a really big problem that Elmer Imes is not one of those names that gets circulated. I think that that's a really good example of someone who doesn't get their due. And to situate in context some of the the statistics you read, so I do think we're either at about the 100 point or about to, to get there. So when it comes to the question of U.S.-rooted Black women, whether that's those of us who are born in the U.S. or who have done a lot of our education in the U.S. or in some other way U.S.-rooted, the number 100 can be hard to understand in context if you don't really know anything about statistics of physics PhD production. There are about 2,000 PhDs granted in the United States in physics every single year. So 2,000 every single year. In the first 50 years since the first African-American woman earned a PhD in physics, that was Willie Hobbs Moore in 1972 from the University of Michigan, there were under 100 Black American women specifically from physics departments. The number grows if you think about related fields like astronomy, areas of material science that are physics, et cetera. So again, just to give context, 2,000 PhDs every year versus 100 PhDs over 50 years, right? So that's kind of the numerical context. I think one of the risks of, of talking about those numbers, and this was something that I didn't really appreciate when I first started talking about it. In the post-hidden figures era, so in, you know, now that the film has come out and people are like aware that there are black women scientists that sometimes they're not talking about, there's this tendency to want to search for this person is number 51, this person's number 52, and to create a narrative about the significance of that individual person. And while each person is individually significant, I think that the importance of naming the numbers is not to brand ourselves as like, oh, yeah, I'm number 63. How cool am I? Right? Right. Which I think is sometimes what people think that I've been doing. But to talk about how absolutely fucked up it is that the Mm. numbers are so low. Yeah. I'm curious if you think there's a particular reason that there are less Black women in the field of physics in general, maybe compared to other fields of science? My own particular perspective on this is very rooted in Ewan Rhys Morris's history of physics when physics became king. 
So during the 19th century, physics became kind of the king of the sciences. And I think that the gendering here is purposeful and important because I do think that there was a very masculine and colonial element to it as well. And that continued into the 20th century, especially in the post-Manhattan Project era. Physics was really powerful technologically, and it brought a kind of power to the table that the other sciences didn't in terms of shifting institutional relations and the utility to institutions of power, like the military-industrial complex. And so I think Physics, maybe even more strongly than other areas of science, has hewed closely to the patterns of those power structures, which are deeply white supremacist and colonialist and therefore patriarchal and ableist and heterosexist and, and all of these things. And so that's kind of my theory is that it's, it, it's a historical evolution. Right. And I'm sure this historical skewed makeup of the physics community has had tremendous impacts on the types of inquiries that have been raised and the types of research that have been conducted as well and the approaches as well. And so far on the show, we have engaged with a wide variety of fields like biology, chemistry, ecology, indigenous science, our various social sciences, as well as a lot of other non-scientific ways of knowing, feeling, creating, and thinking. And I don't think we've been guided to apply the lens of physics or even astrophysics to look at our socio-ecological spiritual crises and dynamics before. So it really fascinates me that you've used your unique perspectives and background to explore the physics of melanin. How would you introduce this concept to somebody totally new to it? And how would you invite our listeners to start thinking about the relationship between physics and our social injustices and planetary ailments? The reason that I started thinking about the physics of melanin was very simply because like many people of color, I was diagnosed by my doctor as being vitamin D deficient. And then he told me that this was common among people of African descent. And actually, I think that there, there's some question marks there about whether the, the way that vitamin D levels are measured because that baseline is kind of evolved around people who are not melanated, I think that there are some questions there about whether those tests could be done better. But I'm not a medical expert and I'm not a biology expert. So I think that, that that's all that I will I will say about that. But I think it was interesting for me because that was really the first time that I had ever thought about melanin in my skin as a scientific phenomenon. Right. And in particular, the question around like vitamin D is related to absorption of sunlight. And so as a physicist, this should be actually like a very natural thing for me to think about, because a lot of what we do in astronomy is actually think about how is light absorbed? How is it interacting with different surfaces? Whether it's like the mirror in a telescope or whether it's, you know, reflecting off of a planet or being emitted by a star, all of these different phenomena, we're often thinking about light and how light interacts. So at some point I was just like, wow, I can't believe I never asked myself the question of what is this very basic interaction between light and our skin? Wow. Yeah. I would be curious how you would 
invite our listeners to think about the relationship between physics and like our ecological crises. So maybe it has to do with like sunlight and our our climate crisis, or I don't know, what are some ways that you've thought through these things? I think the, the bigger question is not necessarily specifically about physics, but generally speaking about how we culturally engage with science and the role of science in our communities mm-hmm. and how how it shapes our mindset and what our mindset about science is. There's this tendency, particularly in these hyper-colonial societies like in the United States, in you know Europe, where the the culture has traditionally been very colonialist, very imperialist, right? To say that technology and progress are basically the same thing, that technology is progress. And the challenge that I I put to people about that is that global warming is a technological advancement. Global warming is a technological achievement. We now know how to change the ecosystem of an entire planet. We now know how to warm an entire planet, right? We now know how to change the composition of the atmosphere. I mean, even just thinking about when I was a kid, right, there was this giant hole in the ozone layer. And actually, we took steps to address that. And the ozone layer is in a better place now, right? So these are technological developments. Most of them have been really bad, right? And so I think that that challenges the narrative that technology is always progress and that like the fact of technology and the enactment of technology is always a step of progress. You know, I was listening to your your last episode before we recorded with Enrique Salmon, and he was talking about some lessons that were lessons that I also learned as a child. Um, And in particular, I I wrote down a couple of the comments that he made. So he said the land is a relative to us. And he specifically said that this is not a metaphysical comment, that, that the land, the rocks, the trees, that these are genuinely our relatives, they are our kin. And I think one, that's something that's a point of view that I was raised with. And so I think for me, it's a very natural way of looking at the world. But for people for whom it is not their cultural orientation, it's not what they were not a viewpoint that they were raised with, I would invite them to think about the power of thinking through that lens. And whether if people who were using technology 100 years ago had this mindset, whether we would be in this ecological, catastrophic crisis that we are currently in. If as Kanaka Maoli Native Hawaiians say, the land is our relative, what would we have? I, I Let me take that back because it, it wasn't us. <laughs> but I guess I'll say we like as scientists, what might scientists have done differently in terms of their engagement with technology, the recommendations that they were making to policymakers about the uses of technology. If at every stage they were saying to themselves, the land is our kin, the land is our relative, the squirrels are our relatives, the chipmunks are our relatives, the cardinals are our relatives. And I'm just naming the the wildlife that I see a lot around my house in particular. Yeah, and 
I mean, speaking of these underlying worldviews, we have conversed with various scientists and people with other cultural backgrounds who have critiqued the limitations of Western science in terms of some of its presumptions and philosophies, such as maybe how reducing things to their smallest components in isolation is the most reliable way to study certain things, or how producing replicable and generalizable findings as the ultimate goal is the signifier of credibility, or how central the researcher's sense of objectivity is as an outsider to what's being studied. And to the contrary, indigenous science and other approaches to understanding the world might invite people to honor things like relationality that you just spoke to and the important impacts of being one part of the matrix. Also, maybe honoring context-dependent and ever-changing and non-universalizable knowledge as well, and also more holistic perspectives that understand the whole to be more than the sum of their parts divided up. When you talk about the historical leadership and contributions of Black and Indigenous scientists around the globe who have practiced astronomy or other sciences deep into our historical past, I wonder what you've noted in regards to how people have defined or approached science differently. And also, as a Black queer person who is a leader in the scientific community today, I wonder if the alternative lenses such as relationality, which you resonate with, and yeah, just being a part of the matrix also apply when when it comes to opening up other ways of understanding things like particle matter and astronomy. It's kind of hard for me to comprehend what that might look like, but what have you thought through in these regards? You know, I think that these are all frameworks, right? And a problem that we are currently dealing with, the, the fallout from and, and continues to be an issue, is supremacy, the idea that one framework is supreme over the others. Mm -hmm. And I would encourage everyone who has kind of an ideological commitment of that kind to ask themselves whether the framework that they are ideologically committed to truly is perfect and supreme and that other frameworks have nothing to offer to it. So it happens to be that the framework that I work in uses a particular mathematical description to understand the, the way that the physical world works, and it's highly successful along certain metrics. It does a very good job of predicting outcomes of experiments, for example, it does a very good job of understanding the science of constituting phenomena like multiple particles as individual types of objects and how those work in concert with each other to form phenomena like atoms. And I think that there's something really beautiful about that framework. I also don't have to be married to that framework as the only way to look at the world, right? So from my point of view, the problem is, is when someone walks up and is like, no, that's the only way to look at the world. And I remember, for example, like Stephen Hawking towards the end of his life would talk about how like there was no need for God anymore because we had physics. And I'm paraphrasing and potentially poorly paraphrasing, but that was my takeaway from it. And I'm actually not a person who has like faith in the supernatural but it's my point of view as a physicist that actually what we do as physicists doesn't tell us anything about whether there is a God or not. That's not really the set of questions that our toolkit is designed to answer. 
And so I think it's okay to know what your tools can and cannot do. And it's okay to know also that how you use your tools and how you think about the potential of your tools is shaped by the political and by the social. And so just to go back to that example about technology, sure, we can build the thing, but the question of whether we should build the thing and how we use it and how often we use it and what we allow it to do to the land, to the people, to the environment, those are political and social questions. And enlightenment frameworks have not been good guides in how to be responsible in a way that leads to healthy ecosystems that are in harmony. So I try to be very careful about essentializing. I don't want to essentialize any one framework as this one is better. And I, I also don't want to essentialize in indigenous ways of knowing. And of course, there's a plurality, right? Because indigenous people are, are not all one community. There are many, even just looking at Africa and the diversity of the indigenous communities there, that's already an incredible breadth, right? What I will say is that every single community has mechanisms of rational knowledge production and has developed those mechanisms to its own purposes. And those purposes have been contextualized by the community's politics and cultural values and social values. And I think that we are, are trying to figure out the ways of looking at the world and being with and being in the world that allow us to be curious as a species, because as a species, we are curious. I, I think that that is one thing that's actually universal about us biologically, or at least culturally, but also allows us and other species simultaneously to thrive. And I think that it's clear that Western imperial dominance is not a good recipe for that. Yeah, I really resonate with this call to kind of respect and honor and learn from all of the above, because I think that is what helps us to really expand and broaden our perspectives and really gain a more holistic and truer understanding of the world. And it also just speaks to the importance of maintaining a sense of humility and really recognizing the limits of our own personal lenses and ways of knowing. And in preparation for our conversation, I watched one of your past talks where you shared about your excitement about the Axion. And to be honest, I felt totally lost just because I haven't ever really had opportunities to learn even the basics of what dark matter is. But this is, of course, what you spend a major part of your research on. So how would you introduce what dark matter is and the significance of your advocacy for it to be known as invisible matter rather than dark matter? And also, how have you thought through or critiqued analogies that compare dark matter to the Black experience? So I think this is a really good example of where a framework works particularly well. The, the physics framework of using laws that we have developed a local understanding of, for example, gravity, to interpret data that we get through telescopes has allowed us to understand that most of the matter in the universe that's gravitating the way that you know the Earth and the Sun have a gravitational interaction with each other and the Earth is in orbit around the Sun, we are you know, on the surface of the earth or near to the surface of the earth because of gravity, right? And so there's this tendency to think that 
what's gravitating and what's matter that's out there is stuff that's visible like us, what we would call visible matter. But actually, thanks to our understanding of the laws of physics, we know that most of the gravitating matter in the universe is actually completely invisible to us. And that's actually most of what we know about it. Otherwise, it's a complete mystery, and this is actually something that we're spending a lot of time trying to understand. So this phenomenon, for historical reasons, is called dark matter. But as you mentioned, to give people a better intuition for what it actually is, it likely should be called invisible matter or transparent matter, because almost certainly light goes through it. There is one um, hypothetical scenario where dark matter is actually comprised of what we would call primordial black holes. So black holes that formed in the very early universe. And that's probably the one scenario where I'd be like, yeah, okay, it absorbs light because black holes actually absorb light and then you can't see it anymore, right? It's actually lights out. But most of our, our models and the models that I would say that most of the community leans toward thinking are real, more realistic scenarios is one where dark matter is comprised of a particle that we've never seen in the lab before. And in that scenario, that particle probably doesn't have many interactions with light. So it's very different from melanin, for example. And light probably goes right through it. So it's transparent. So that's generally speaking what the dark matter problem is. I have become particularly well known in the, the physics community for being an expert on a particular candidate for the dark matter. And this is a hypothetical particle. So it's a particle we still have never seen. It's called the mm -hmm. axion. Um, it was almost called the higlet, which I think was just like a really big missed <laughs> opportunity. <laughs> and one of the reasons I'm a fan of this particle is that we actually need it to solve another problem in particle physics. So it's a, a twofer, basically. It's well, it's, so the professional way of saying that is that it's a well-motivated model. Mm. So I've noticed something of a pattern, particularly with people actually working in African-American studies and black thought and black studies, to take up dark matter as an analogy for the black experience. And there's a level on which I understand that because what people have been told is that it's called dark matter, right? And so I think when there can be this feeling of this is a way that we can kind of be attuned to the fact and phenomenon of colorism, which there is simply not enough discussion about. Even in the last few years, when there's been increased discussion about issues of race and racism in you know U.S. discourse, it's still really, I think, challenging to get people to talk about colorism and how colorism has has shaped even the landscape of what that conversation looks like and and who gets heard. And I say that as a, as a, as a light-skinned Black person, that we need to talk more about that. So I understand that aspect of wanting to grab onto something that is uh, uses the word dark and is extraordinary. I think the phenomenon of dark matter is an extraordinary phenomenon. I think there's also this feeling of, well, dark matter is invisible and Black people are invisible. And on the one hand, I get that. And I actually, I'm a huge fan of Ralph Ellison's Invisible Man novel. But I really think that the analogy with dark matter in particular 
doesn't do justice to the listener on either side. So for the person who is an expert on physics, but maybe doesn't know so much about the Black experience, when they hear that analogy, they're like, oh yeah, Black people are just invisible. But look, Black people are hyper-visible. That's one thing, is there's a, a mix of being hyper-visible and invisible at the same time. But the other thing is that I think it affirms for some people the idea that Black people are just magically different from white people. And that's a problem because we're not. So I actually have a chapter in my book in The Disordered Cosmos called Black People Are Luminous Matter because I really wanted to hit home. Actually, we are just human and we are human just like white people. And so I think that that's one side of it. And I think that for the other side, for Black folks who you know, understand being racialized and dealing with anti-Blackness and dealing with racism, but maybe don't know something about dark matter, that actually the analogy can misinform them about what dark matter is. Because dark matter isn't just like, oh, it's another type of matter that stuff is made out of. The stuff that we can see is not made out of dark matter. Everything that we can see, including ourselves, we're made out of the exact same star stuff, the exact same star stuff. So for me, I think that it's really important to hit home that Black people are star stuff mm. and Black people are luminous matter and, and vibrant luminous matter and beautiful luminous matter and complicated luminous matter and all of the ways that other human beings are, we are too. Yeah, thank you for this clarification. And, you know, I'm just still thinking through how something like astrophysics and physics in general, which can feel really out there for a lot of us, relates to some of our most pressing and felt issues of today, like our various social injustices, people's various cultural values and relationships to our lands and their so-called resources, and then the impacts of those worldviews. And I just feel very stimulated engaging with your work because of how groundbreaking it is when you weave these diverse disciplines together and yeah, just really different different ways of looking at these issues and how it transcends a lot of normalized narratives about the world. And what really stood out to me was when you shared that the, quote, standard model is everything that we can see, all of the particles we can see, but it's not necessarily everything that we can feel. It is mostly not what the universe is made of. The universe is mostly made up of stuff that we can't see, end quote. So what lessons do you think we can take away here in that there's so much that we can feel but not necessarily see? And how might these larger-than-life inquiries about the universe help us to put things into perspective and maybe better understand what it means to be even alive as these minuscule humans during this time of social, ecological, and spiritual crises? I think the important thing, as I said earlier, is that humans as a species are, are curious. And so actually the, the black feminist philosopher of science and, and novelist Sylvia Winter has articulated humans as homo nerens. We are a storytelling species. And I think she was meditating on the ideas of Juan Luis Arzuaga when she said this. And she says that we are composed of bios and mythoi. So we are a biological species, but we are also a social species, and storytelling is part of what we do. 
And so I think of what we do in physics as, as a form of storytelling. We have a set of rules that our storytelling has to follow. We have a very specific toolkit that we use to craft our stories, but we are storytelling. And that is something that I think regardless of someone's orientation, they can relate to that activity and that idea and that orientation. And if you look at the history of human communities, every human community has told stories about the way the world is and why the world is the way that it is. Stories about the night sky, stories about the seasons. And so I, I know that at least some of my colleagues in the scientific community would be like, yeah, but ours are correct and some people's aren't correct, right? Mm. But I think just coming back to the question of like indigenous ways of knowing and indigenous sciences, whether or not the word science is, is, is the right word and context in their own cultural context, right? I think that that can be one of the complicating things is that sometimes we're saying, oh yeah, those indigenous people, that indigenous community is doing science, but that's like not the right translation of the word that they themselves would use to describe their activity, right? Mm -hmm. So we have to be really careful about that and thoughtful about that. But, you know, just, just coming back to that question, when you look at the rise of science in Europe and in the United States and the rise of science in the colonial countries, what you see also is a history of settler colonizers and travelers going and learning information from indigenous people and collating that information. So even looked at in a historical context, there's this tendency to be like, well, science, this kind of science that is better at storytelling just happened to evolve in Europe, right? But the truth is, is that they were getting a lot of help. And the big thing that they were doing was that they were using force to collect all the information. And then they had the privilege of collating it and thinking about it all together simultaneously. So you can imagine the difference between having access to a giant library and only having access to a couple of the books, particularly if basically you've gone around the world and at gunpoint taken everybody's books and put them all in the mm. library. Yeah. So I, I think when we, when we talk about the history of our storytelling practice in science and how our tools have developed... Particularly, I think the, the easy example here is when we talk about like medicines, there are so many medicines that are based on herbal knowledge that was gathered by so-called explorers from indigenous knowers in different parts of the world. And this is something that increasingly historians of science are documenting. So this idea of this one particular framework being superior and being part of a, a superior culture, I think about the, the African philosopher, Ghanaian philosopher, Kwasi Wiridu, who he has this like great essay where I actually think it could be a little bit controversial because he actually makes some pointed comments about Africans and mysticism and spiritualism and how it's not scientific. And I think that there's probably a lot people could unpack there. But part of what's powerful about the essay is that he says Europeans are exactly the same. He says that Europeans tend to be extremely mystical. 
and I'm spiritually oriented. And so this bifurcation of one community is rational and the others are like the so-called savages is basically just bullshit. And it's a story that, you know, um, history is written by the victors. And so it's a story that's being written by the victors. So I think part of the work that I do as, as a scientist is to try and be aware that the story that I have been told about how we get here is not necessarily what actually happened. And to welcome people back in, in some cases, to their own traditions. Yeah, this really speaks to the, the importance of media and storytelling and who are writing these histories and stories. And also just the context of how this knowledge was collected and sometimes stolen or co-opted is also really important to take into account as well. And earlier you mentioned the night sky. A few years ago now, we welcomed Ruskin Hartley of the International Dark Sky Association to the podcast. And you mentioned that you think they're one of the most important scientific organizations out there. So I'm curious what you think is the significance of the various questions that advocating for dark skies brings together. And on this note, I want to support you to send the message of renaming a telescope after Harriet Tubman up into the sky and also invite you to share the power of putting her out there with, quote, the star that represented freedom. Yeah, so maybe I'll just start with that. So the most recent great observatory that NASA, in partnership with the European Space Agency, launched, which is publicly known as JWST, and I won't say the, the person that it's named after, but the person that it's named after was definitely an establishment player who had a responsibility for um, the development of psychological warfare as a Cold War tool and was also implicated in mediations in the Lavender Scare, so the systematic harassment and firings of LGBT people from the federal government, including NASA when he was the leader during the Apollo era. There was at least one NASA employee who was arrested for being gay and was picked up by the chief of security for NASA and extrajudicially interrogated by NASA security and then fired. And the reason that we know the story is that, is that he subsequently sued. So I and Lucian Walkowitz and Sarah Tuttle and Brian Nord have proposed that the telescope should actually be renamed the Harriet Tubman Space Telescope. We have good evidence to suggest that Harriet Tubman was a, a brilliant naturalist who understood her environment and likely used the, the North Star to navigate on the Underground Railroad. We do know for sure that enslaved people used the North Star as a guide to freedom. And I can't think of a better use for astronomy than escaping chattel slavery. So I think it's very obvious when we go out into space, we should be sending the best of humanity and our dreams and our aspirations and our goals and people who represent the best of us. And I can't think of you know someone who would be identified as an American who better represents who we should be than Harriet Tubman, who fought every day for, for freedom and for justice for her people. And, and to bring that back to questions of what the dark sky represents to us, 
one of the reasons that people were able to use the night sky to run to freedom is because the night sky was visible, right? And consistent. So there weren't like a bunch of like Elon Musk satellites, uh, launch satellites blighting the sky and making it difficult to tell like what's a star and what's not a star. They didn't have significant problems with light pollution. The night sky is the dark night sky is what our species evolved under. And until very recently, all of our ancestors had a very clear view of the night sky. And so I really think we need to think of the night sky as part of our ecosystem and part of our ancestral inheritance that is currently being squandered on completely undemocratic terms that people are making these decisions for us with very little regulation or, or government interference. I think that what the International Dark Sky Association does is actually quite radical, even though I think people might look at it and say, well, that's not very political and, and it's, it's pretty simple, that they're calling to protect dark skies. But the implications are, are huge. I think about the people in Wonder Valley in California, which is near um, the is home to a lot of Joshua trees. It's very near Joshua Tree National Park, and they're currently fighting the development of a new mega hotel and possibly like an entire like new build of extensive houses that would basically pump the groundwater supply that Joshua trees rely on for their survival. And part of the fight, I think is protecting the dark night sky. And so protecting the dark night sky means asking tough questions about um, these so-called exciting developments. Yeah, I actually recently spoke with Dr. Aparna Venkatesan, who also is an advocate for protecting dark skies. Although I think we, we talked about, I guess, this difficult question where she mentions to have accessibility to broadband connection and to increase that accessibility due to the injustice of who currently has access to these technologies has to be addressed. So there's this recognition that if that were the vision for a future, then we do have to increase the number of satellites out there in order to expand people's accessibility to broadband connection. But at the same time, knowing that this would also contribute to this issue of light pollution. So yeah, I guess I would just be curious to hear what you think in terms of this, because her take was that this is inevitable. So we have to think about the best ways to definitely involve more stakeholders, because as you mentioned, currently the, the decision making process currently leaves out a lot of voices and is primarily driven by privatized interests. But what other considerations or difficult questions should we be asking here? Yeah, I mean, one of the first things that comes to mind is that there are indigenous communities in the Amazon that are like, leave us the fuck alone. Mm -hmm. They aren't asking for satellite internet. They're asking people to leave them the fuck alone. <laughs> So I think like the first thing is, is that we have to be really careful about the presumption. And again, I think that this is like the technology equals progress question that people have different relationships to what kinds of technology that they want access to. And people maybe want access to the technology of the night sky and of being able to use the night sky to navigate. So I think 
the first thing that comes to mind here is actually that astronomers in particular, and this comes up, for example, in the fight about the 30-meter telescope on Mauna Kea in Hawaii, have a really difficult time with the idea that sometimes the answer about so-called development is no. Actually, we don't want that. So I think that we need to be really careful about saying that things are inevitable. The moment you start declaring that something is inevitable, you've taken the side of ensuring that it happens and that there are certain stakeholders who are going to be run over in, in that process. So I, f I find that really concerning. And actually, you know, in context, it happens to be that right now I'm rereading Arundhati Roy's nonfiction going back to the early 1990s. She has a, a, a 1,000 page, it's going to take me a while, 1,000 page collection of her nonfiction. And she was the essayist that I first read that convinced me that writing nonfiction and reading nonfiction was actually worth my time. And, and I think in a lot of ways was the foundational model for the kind of writer that I am now. And some of the early stuff I hadn't read before, and in particular, she has these very deep dives into the way that the Indian government in the decades after independence used the idea of technology and development and economic growth to argue that dams had to be built. And these dams ended up displacing indigenous people. And, you know, I think like one of my takeaways from having read through like three or four essays of hers by now on this is that there's actually no such thing as an ecologically sound dam. Like dams are always a bad idea. It reduces the amount of land that's available for people to live on and farm. And it created a situation where people went from being able to live in harmony with their ecosystem and use technologies that were indigenous to their community to forcing them into a capitalist economic relationship with external communities and with their government where they became deeply impoverished and people went from being a part of thriving indigenous communities to their children literally starving to death and that this was considered development and that this was considered inevitable technological progress. So I think that we have to be suspicious of anyone saying that we just have to go along with this and now we just have to minimize the damage. That's been the narrative of the last 100 years and look at where it has gotten us. That's not going to save our lives. And that's not actually, it's not actually giving people a seat at the table. If you're like, look, you have to accept this thing is going to damage your community, but we're here to talk with you about how you can benefit from this thing that's going to damage your community. To the particular question of, you know, this is going to happen, but we need it to happen because people need access to the internet. I don't know, man. Like, I, I get that there are some communities where people do feel like, oh, yeah, we want access to the internet. But is Elon Musk really planning to make that shit available to y'all for free, for real? Like, is that, is that how this unfolds? That's not how this unfolds. Like, I'm just going to say that clearly. And we're actually now seeing that in the Amazon, people are using that satellite internet to fucking kill indigenous people. So mm. I just like, I, I think we all need to really sit and think really carefully about the so-called human right to internet, because it's a really good line that Elon Musk 
and his cronies benefit from, but they don't give a flying fuck about human rights. I'm sorry. I just like, there's no polite way to put that. They don't care. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They do not. Right. Aparna certainly spoke to some of these nuances, so I don't want to oversimplify everything that she said. I was definitely paraphrasing, but I think all of this speaks to how there are competing visions of justice. You know, certain people might want in on certain things because of the visions that have been sold and told to them that this is how things should, should be. This is what improving our qualities of life looks like. This is what advancement looks like. And when these visions of justice and equity are narrow in scope for whose interest they consider, then some of these, you know, visions can actually worsen injustice for other people. So, Again, it's really important to, you know, take into account these diverse perspectives at hand and always critical to bring in more voices and more stakeholders so that it could be ideally a much more collective decision than ones driven by particular people incentivized by the values of profit above all else. Anyway, we are coming to a close for our main conversation here, but I feel like there's so many things in general that you research and talk about that I couldn't even begin to know how to ask you. So I want to leave this space for you to share anything else you would like to leave with our listeners and also any other calls to action or a deeper inquiry you have for us. I want to encourage people to look up the Stop Wonder Valley Inn community and learn more about what's happening in California. And I think that that is a particularly informative fight because that is a state that is truly experiencing a water crisis. It is truly experiencing the, the many crises of global warming, the fires, now the floods. So I think that it's important to pay attention to the different ways that people are starting to organize in synergistic ways against development that is ecologically harmful. And the way that they're bringing the night sky into that conversation, I, th I think it's really powerful. What's been one of the most impactful books that you've read or publications you follow? Right now, I'm really excited about Spectre, a Marxist journal. They have really fantastic social analysis, and they're kind of aimed at academics, but I think that they're broadly accessible. What is a personal motto, mantra, or practice you engage with to stay grounded? I was very, very influenced growing up and into adulthood by Thich Nhat Hanh, the Vietnamese monk who, um, Zen monk who passed away last year. And actually, I often think of what he, a very simple thing that he would often remind people, breathing in, I am home. Mm. 
And what is one of your greatest sources of inspiration at the moment? Yeah, I'm like so excited by the kids that are organizing their schools and communities and telling these raggedy ass authoritarians that they will die on their feet, that they refuse to live on their knees. I I particularly just want to shout out the the coalition of students at Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas, carrying on the tradition of, of fighting for justice in their schools. Um, I think that for any young people who are listening, you all will save the world. Mm. Well, Green Dreamer, we are coming to a close here, but to learn more about the disordered cosmos, a journey into dark matter, space time, and dreams deferred, as well as stay updated on Chanda's work, you can head to cprescottweinstein.com. And Chanda, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. It's been an absolute honor to be in conversation with you. For now, what final words of wisdom do you have for us as Green Dreamers? You know, I guess the other impactful mantra that I will just share, I'll share two more. Optimism is better than despair. That's from Jack Layton. And hope is a practice from Mariam Akaba. So practice hope. Keep going. If you learn from or feel inspired by this conversation, we would so appreciate your direct support through a donation of any amount today at greendreamer.com support. As it stands, we cannot continue our show beyond this year, but if every listener committed to chipping in just $2 a month, we would be able to reach our fundraising goals in no time and be able to sustainably continue producing our podcast while remaining untethered to corporate interests. You can help us out also by submitting a five-star review in the podcast app and sharing your favorite episodes out with your loved ones. Our song featured today is Trust the Sun by Oro Pendola. Our audio producer is Scott Donnell. Our supporting researcher is Anissa Simahali. Our production manager is Emma Jeffrey, and I'm your host, Kamea Shane. Thank you so much for tuning in, and I'll catch you soon in the next episode. <laughs>